Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. And you can learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, who is a historian and chair in ancient history at Cardiff University. He's also the director of the Ancient Iran Program for the British Institute of Persian Studies. And he is the author of the book, Persians, the Age of the Great Kings, which just came out this month, just a few days ago. I've been reading it over the last few days, and it's, it's really excellent. Uh, really a deep dive into the ancient Persian culture, which I've never encountered that before. I've only been reading about the Persians through the lens of the Greeks and stuff like that. So it's a, it's absolutely fascinating. I've loved it. Thanks for being on the show today, Professor. Uh, I think my first question that I, I wanted to put out to you is just what led you to write this book and uh, why did you think a book like this was was needed? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the welcome. And I'm really glad to know that you're enjoying the book as well. And essentially, you know, um, in your introduction there, you've kind of answered the question, really. I wanted to provide uh, a counter narrative to the way in which we tend to approach the Persians. And of course, that is usually as the kind of also ran or the kind of um, the opposing team, um, the baddies, if you like, of of ancient history. Okay, so as your uh, as many of your listeners will will know, essentially the the Persians have been encountered through predominantly ancient Greek sources. Later on, through Roman historians who are looking back on Greece, and so we get this very Eurocentric Western idea of what the Persians are. Uh, and by and large, they seem to be um, barbarianized more than anything, you know. Um, the Greeks saw them as this great existential threat to their liberties, their freedoms, whatever the Greeks meant by that. Um, and this has come down in the historiography um, of the Greek world ever since. Um, you, you know, right the way down to the way in which, in fact, we perceive of Iran even today, uh, perceive of generally of the Middle East as well as kind of harbingers of terror, of extremism, um, of the opposition to democracy, really. So it has a deep, deep lasting effect, this, this creation of the Persian as the ultimate barbarian. And I just wanted to alert people to that there's another version out there, something which I call the Persian version, which tells a very different story indeed. Um, and the Persian empire, the biggest empire the world had ever seen at that point, deserves its place in the study of ancient history. It's too important to ignore. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm really curious about, because the, the it, it seems like the main sources that uh, have been relied upon for so much of Western history are these Greek historians talking about the Persians. That's right. What sources, um, when you went about approaching this and studying this and writing a book on it, uh, did you did you look at those sources a lot? Which other sources did you yeah. try to use to get that Persian perspective sure. uh, that you're talking about? Yes, good question. Well, the first thing that you have to be realistic about when you're trying to write Persian history from the from the other side is that the Persians simply didn't have 
any tradition of writing narrative histories right. in the way that, say, you know, we have in Greece from Herodotus, particularly the Zen, uh, um, Thucydides and Xenophon, and then into the um, the Roman world as well. Now, that's not to say that the, the Persians didn't have a sense of their own past, their own history. It's just that they transmitted it differently. And the way in which they transmitted their past, of course, was through far more of an oral tradition. So stories that were being passed down. And I don't think just narrative stories either. I think in poetry, in song, and in performances as well. If you think about um, Persia's great legacy to the world in, in terms of poetry, okay, the great Persian poets of the Middle Ages, mm. I'm sure um, that that tradition is already there in antiquity, that the people are um, reciting epic poems about figures like Cyrus the Great, for instance. In fact, Herodotus himself tells us that he knows of at least four versions of the birth of Cyrus the Great, suggesting that there were numerous kind of tales circulating in the Persian-speaking world um, at, at around Herodotus' time. So therefore, when you go looking for the Persian sources, you know you're not going to find a history. You know you're not going to find a narrative history. But what we've got instead are a myriad of different sources. And you have to think of it rather like a huge jigsaw puzzle, okay? And some of these pieces slot together really easily but there are going to be things that are still missing and there are going to be gaps around the edges in particular. But the kind of materials I was using were genuine Persian royal inscriptions. So these are texts usually carved in cuneiform lettering into, into rock faces, into stelae. Uh, and these speak the kind of official words of the great kings of Persia, of Darius and Xerxes and so forth. They're kind of ahistorical. They're very boastful. And of course, you know, the, the Persian sources too have, a, have an agenda. They also are there for a kind of propaganda basis. Beyond that, we have thousands and thousands of clay tablets written in cuneiform texts as well. And these tell us about the daily workings of the empire. They talk a lot about rations of food, work workforces who are positioned in different parts of the empire, just how the bureaucracy itself works. Mm. Then we have, of course, the, the very rich archaeology of Iran and of the wider Persian Empire as well. Um, and a lot of really great research is being done currently by archeologists in the field in Iran and in the wider parts of the ancient uh, Persian Empire, which is, uh, well, just opening up a new vision of what the Persians were all about. We have the art, the artworks, of course, um, everything from huge monumental sculptures to tiny cylinder seal images dispersed across the whole of the, the Persian Empire. And what we have to do as Persian historians is to piece all of these things together. So you kind of have to be, to, to, in order to write a history of, of ancient Persia, um, you, you have to use every source available to you. You can't pick and choose your sources. You have to use everything to try to put that together. And then even then the picture is not complete, okay? So for instance, let me give you a really good example of how this um, operates. Um, many people will know um, the name Xerxes, King Xerxes, because of his campaigns in Greece in 480, 479 BCE, when he was trying to bring Greece under the rulership of the, of the empire. Now, of course, that makes, the, the, the story of Xerxes in Greece makes a huge, huge impact upon Herodotus's histories. You know, he, it's up front and center. In fact, the whole of the histories um, essentially is written to focus on this. But the Persian sources do not make one mention of it. There is absolutely not one mention 
of that Greek campaign of Xerxes. Now, that's not to say that the Greek campaign didn't happen. You know, I believe it happened. Of course, it is. There's too much evidence elsewhere in the Greek world for it um, that way. But the question then has to be, why didn't the Persians write about it? Um, There can be two or three possible answers, either that they were embarrassed by the defeat and they didn't want it to be brought up, or more likely, given that they had the biggest empire in the world, a little skirmish on the Western front of the empire was actually a very little consequence to them. And that's why they they don't make anything of it. So for the Greeks, repelling this superpower from the East, that was everything. And it gave them a kind of self-identity. But for the Persians, a skirmish on the Western fringes of their empire was nothing to write home about at all, Um, you know, especially when they were still trying to control Egypt or to conquer India uh, at that point as well. They were far more important. But what I've tried to do in my book is, for instance, the chapter I write about Xerxes' invasion of Greece, I try to think about it from a Persian perspective. So I have to use Herodotus and other Greek sources but I tried to interpret it through Persian eyes. What would this have meant for, for somebody like Xerxes or his men fighting abroad during this campaign? So I think you can find a Persian version if you look at even these ancient Greek texts with a different set of eyes. Hmm. Well, and, and I want to come back to the, uh, the invasion of Greece. And, but before we do that, I'm, I'm wondering, can you sort of give listeners a little bit of an idea of the scope of the empire yes. and sort of, uh, I mean, are we talking about modern day Iran uh, and kind of sort of where the empire was located, the scope yeah. and sort of how it came to, you know, came to be uh, yeah. that size? Yeah. Um, it, it grows in size remarkably quickly within two generations, really. It starts out under Cyrus, uh, uh, Cyrus II, or becomes known as Cyrus the Great, as a tiny um, tribal society in southwest Iran, uh, near the city of Persepolis today, near the, the modern city of Shiraz. But within two generations, it has grown. Um, let me give you the full extent of the empire. So it runs from Libya in North Africa, right the way down the Nile to Ethiopia. Mm. It occupies the whole of the Levant, the whole of Asia Minor, so that's modern day Turkey pushing up into the Ukraine, just to the border of the Ukraine, so much on the news these days. And then through Iran, Mesopotamia and Iran, and into the east, it goes into the mountains of Pakistan and into North India. So it was vast, a huge multi-ethnic, multilingual empire, um, run and operated from the the center um, at cities like Persepolis, Susa, Babylon and Ekbatana. These were the, the main sort of um, Achaemenid sites, the main Persian sites. And it's it's fascinating that this was, and I don't know if these are your words, but I, I came across this recently, so it may have been your book, about it being sort of the world's first superpower. Yeah, um, that's the phrase I use, absolutely. Okay. It truly was. I mean, uh, th- there was nothing like it, and there was nothing to rival it at the time. That's that's the incredible thing. You know, there was no other superpower in the East or superpower in the West to kind of check it, to control it at all. Um, You know, at the the height of the the late Roman Empire, for instance, you know, there were the Sasanians in the East, right? Well, the Achaemenids had nothing like that at all. They had nothing really to to hold in their power whatsoever. So they just kept growing, um, essentially. Um, 
And in, in fact, I suppose that's really the, the reason why in the end it just doesn't get any bigger is because it ne- reaches its, its natural limits. Um, it, that's, a, that's an empire that's big enough. The fact that they managed to hold it together for almost 300 years mm-hmm. with complete harmony um, on, on, on the whole is, is quite remarkable. And, you know, they did it through uh, an amazing road infrastructure. So main roads crisscross this whole empire. They also had um, seats of government established in all these different parts of the empire. So the great kings would send out satraps, kind of like regents or viceroys or something like that, to these different parts of the empire. And they would work with the local populations, local kings, local governors, uh, to provide... Um, make, to make sure that taxes were paid to the central authority. Mm. Um, and as long as that kind of thing was done, then the Persians kind of let things alone. It was a very sort of laissez-faire um, way of governing, really. As long as the payments went into the central treasury, um, then everybody was happy. And what's really remarkable about the way in which the Persians run their empire was that they did not impose themselves upon the conquered peoples. Um, What I mean by that is if you look at the Roman Empire, okay, you you can go from Hadrian's Wall through to Syria and you can identify where the Romans have been because, of course, you know, they they build in their style. They they kind of plonk things on top of the landscapes, you know, Roman temples, Roman, Roman fora. And I think for me, the British did exactly the same in the 19th century as well. You know, if you look at look at what we did in, in uh, Canada or if we what we did in um, Australia or India, essentially, you know, we we transplant British architecture, um, you know, wherever we went um, in, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Likewise, um, the Romans, of course, you know, um, forced everybody to use Latin as the as the language of the empire. It was English, of course, under the under the British. But the Persians never had any of those policies at all. Mm. They never imposed their architectural or artistic styles on other people. They never imposed their language on the peoples of the empire. They never imposed religion, as the British certainly did with Christianity, um, onto the peoples of their empires. So you know, it, it, it's really interesting that. When it comes to models of empire, and I don't like empire, empire isn't a good thing. Conquering other people, you know, and, and forcing them to live under subjugation is not a good thing. But I would have preferred to have been a subject of the Persian Empire than of the Romans or the British. I think the system of governance that they established in their empire at least recognized that people had a certain independent dignity, you know, that their cultures had a value. Um, which unfortunately many other empires simply haven't done in the past. Well, and they, and uh, I mean, they, they conquered a number of pretty prominent places like mm. uh, Babylon, Egypt, et cetera. And, and these were not, these were just places that went about their, you know, they kept some semblance of their normal culture and, and, government and stuff like that, even though they were under Persian rule? That's pretty much it, yes, absolutely. So in fact, what we see is that when the Persians conquer these areas, they themselves adapt to local cultures. So when we see um, Persian kings being represented in, in Egypt, for instance, they are depicted in pharaonic style. They take on Egyptian throne names. They, you know, they become like pharaohs. They build temples in honor of the the Persian go- uh, the um, the Egyptian gods. 
Likewise, in Babylon, you know, they worship the god Marduk. They take on the old titles of Babylonian kings. So they try to assimilate themselves into um, the, the cultures and the ideologies of the conquered peoples. And what's interesting about, you know, uh, Persian art of this period is that it's actually a very rich amalgamation of different styles. So there's um, um, certainly styles from Asia Minor, styles from Greece, styles from Egypt, styles from Babylon, all sort of merged together. And rather than it being a sort of hodgepodge and, you know, coming out really kind of awkward looking, actually there's a real synergy and a real beauty in it. And it it becomes purely Persian um, because of this, this sort of... Um, great respect they have for artistic traditions of, of other peoples, really. Um, so there's, there's a kind of harmony that comes over in the arts as well. And this is even goes into the kind of representations of empire that we see um, sculpted into the walls of the great ceremonial city of Persepolis, for instance. Mm. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with something like, say, Trajan's Column, you know, in Rome, what we have there are images of, of great Roman triumphs, of course, over the defeated barbarian peoples who are often shown crushed beneath the, 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 foot, the feet of soldiers and so forth. Or if you know... Um, the um, palace reliefs of Ashurbanipal of, As of Assyria, for instance, we have the same kind of thing. Um, Assyrian soldiers crushing the, uh, the, the conquered populations. But in the art of Persepolis, we have something completely refreshingly different. Mm. Uh, and that is um, representatives, people from all over the empire are welcomed um, and they are led towards the great king um, holding hands with Persian representatives, Persian courtiers um, and officials. There's this kind of feeling of harmony, um, everybody working together in the empire. Now, of course, you know, that in itself is propaganda. Empires are not maintained completely by hand-holding and, and sort of a, a great love-in. Uh, and of course, they contradict what was really happening sometimes in, in the field, and that is, you know, um, Cities were, were being sacked and burned. People were being deported by the Persians. But at least in the ideological aspects of the empire, the Persians were the first really to foster this idea of a multiculturalism uh, of an empire working together for the greater glory. And that in itself, I think, is, is really worth noticing because it's, it's a remarkable sea change in the way that ancient empires and more modern empires have worked. Well, and it, it cuts completely opposite to, I think, the popular perception of the Persians. I mean, even in, I don't know if this comes directly from Herodotus, but I know that in modern films like 300 and things like that, the Persians are cast as all slaves, basically, to yeah. this god king, whereas the Greeks are free people and they are, you know, and it's, We've talked a little bit about that, uh, focusing on Sparta some in the past yeah. on the podcast yeah. and some of the hypocrisy there. Oh, completely. Well, you know, your listeners will know, absolutely. I mean, there was no more of an oppressive slave state than Sparta, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it was absolutely the antithesis of the whole idea of eleutheria, you know, freedom. Um, and that's why I question constantly, what, what, what do the Greeks mean by freedom? Freedom from whom? Um, you know, Greece was a slave society. That's who it was. The Greeks had this enormous sense of their own superiority. They looked down on peoples um, beyond their borders who didn't speak their language. And in fact, you simply do not find that with the Persians whatsoever. Um, maybe it's just 
to do with the nature of the size of the Persian Empire. They could afford to have a kind of self-confidence, which brings about a self-control. But certainly, yeah, films like 300 um, and, and uh, 300 Rise of an Empire um, do nothing whatsoever to... Um, to project the true image of the, of, of of Persia in, in popular culture, unfortunately, yeah, and it's been yeah. very damaging. In fact, that those two movies have been very damaging. Well, and it's you know, I'm interested in ancient history. I I read a decent amount about it and stuff like that. But when you have films like that, they they're so impactful. I mean, even oh. I find myself thinking of Xerxes as the you know the Xerxes from yeah. 300, where he's yeah. the ten foot tall. Absolutely. who's not even really almost not even a human like that's right exactly exactly you know the the um the iranians were very aware of course of the kind of negative propaganda they were getting through the movie um and a website was created you know iranians uh the young iranians they're very sort of media savvy uh and um they've got great sense of humor as well so they set up a website which was full of um kind of political cartoons which mm. is really mocking 300. And one of them shows this fantastic image of a kind of, um, a, you know, the Xerxes that we see depicted on Persepolis, very stately, sitting on his throne with his beautiful curled long beard, holding his scepter, wearing his crown. And he's looking into a mirror, which has kind of got a Batman image over the, the top of it, you know, sort of Marvel comics kind of thing. And he's looking into that mirror and what he sees reflected there is the shaved head uh, and the kind of pumped body of the actor who plays him, you know, and clearly he does not recognize himself um, in that image whatsoever. And that, that's exactly it. You know, it, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't resonate. Like the great tragedy is, as yet, nobody's really made a good Persian movie. You know, there needs to be a really great movie made on Cyrus the Great, taking it seriously or even on Darius or even on the Greek campaign of Xerxes from the Persian version. Um, you know, I was involved as one of the historical consultants on Oliver Stone's 2004 movie, Alexander. And I thought that Oliver was getting, you know, getting a kind of a good sort of image of the Persians uh, in what he was creating on screen. But when I saw the final cut of it, mm. and this is where producers get involved, you know, and, and like, you know, audiences and demographics get in the way. Uh, you know, the, the, the really great Persian scenes that had been filmed were all cut. They were all edited out of it, you know. Oliver's idea originally was to have all the Persian characters played by Iranian or um, Iranian-American actors speaking Persian with subtitles, you know. All of that was done away with. And in the end, you know, the character of Darius III, the last of the great kings, he has only three lines to say in the whole movie, you know, and it's such a shame. So the, the, the Persians lost their voice in that film, even though I will give it to him, Oliver Stone wanted them to be taken as a, seriously, as a great, as a superpower. Inevitably, what happens is, is you know, the film became a, a kind of myth-making of Alexander, like everything that Alexander ever is involved in. It inevitably turns out that way. So I'm waiting yet for the call to be an historical consultant on a really, really good Peugeot-centric movie, because I, th I tell you that it would just make a, a great ne Netflix series, you know? Well, yeah, it would. Uh, like a limited series, something like that. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, if I remember with the Alexander movie, uh, I remember the, the versions of the film where they, you know, uh, there were a few later versions of the film where they That's added right. back in more material, yeah, and it actually improved the 
It did. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a lot better. The final direct, the final director's cut, and I think we're talking about like three director's cuts in. You know, yes. Um, it, it's it is. It's good. It's 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 a really good film. It's it's a subtle piece of historiography. You know, Oliver Stone, I think, is a really serious historian. I mean, if you look at his, you know, Vietnam films, JFK, all of this. I mean, he he takes his history very very seriously, and he was trying to do that with Alexander, but fighting against the studio system all of the time. Can I ask you about, you mentioned Cyrus the Great, mm. and this is a name that uh, m- most people probably haven't heard. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard it. The first time it came up to me was in reading about Alexander, because yeah. I believe Alexander sort of idolized, in a sense, Cyrus the Great for what yeah. he had accomplished. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about Cyrus the Great and kind of his role in the Persian Empire and and uh, in his importance. He's the key to it all. I mean, he was simply a remarkable individual. I I, I don't give the title the Great out to everybody, you know. <laughs> but here's a man who truly deserves it. So he began um, his life as a as the leader of a tribe. So the Persians were were nomadic peoples. They'd moved into what we now call Iran. Uh, about 1000 BC. Um, And during the sort of next 400 years, they were intermingling with the sort of local peoples who are already within the plateau, peoples like the Elamites who were living in the south, were very sort of um, urban-centered Mesopotamian peoples. So we have now this kind of um, input of, of these nomads, these horse nomads originally from from Eurasia, and then these um, kind of um, sedentary urban city dwellers. Um, and Cyrus is leading a tribe um, called the Pasagadai tribe. Um, he's kind of like their, their chief. In the book, I call him a Khan. Um, it's the kind of, you know, a Khan is a, you know, a, a warrior leader like Genghis Khan, that kind of thing. It, it has that kind of um, idea to it. But they were nomads. They were pastoralists. They, they herded cattle. They herded horses. Um, they lived in tents. And they were being increasingly threatened by another Iranian tribe who had settled into the north of Iran around the uh, Elbruz Mountains, so that's around the Caspian Sea, and these are the Medes. You've probably heard of, of these guys, yes. the, the Medes and the Persians. Um, people often think that they're one and the same thing, but they're absolutely not. They're, they're Iranian-speaking peoples of antiquity, but they have uh, a shared DNA, but, but a, a different sort of approach to, to life, really. Um, the Medes were very aggressive uh, as, as warrior people. They had made um, some very, very important pacts with the Babylonians, and they had been extending their own uh, empire in the north of Iran so that it ran into um, the ancient um, territories of northern Assyria and then right into Asia Minor, into uh, right up to the center of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, in fact. So they were getting kind of territorial ambitious, and they started to push down into the south, encroaching all the time on Cyrus's um, territories. Now, Cyrus, um, I don't know where it comes from in him, you know, we, we don't have it explained, but somehow he had the um, the the ambition to, to fight back. And what he does is, for the first time, he unites all of the different Persian tribes under his banner. So he sets himself up as the great Khan, if you like, um, and he leads his men into battle. He also draws the Medes down 
um, into Persia as well. And at his tribal headquarters at this place called Pasagadai, uh, he defeats the Medes. Now, there are different stories about um, his relationship to the Medes. Herodotus tells one story, for instance, where he, Cyrus was the grandson of the king of the Medes. And so basically he was taking the throne off his grandfather. Um, but in other sources, um, Cyrus has nothing to do with the Medes and it was purely a conquest, you know, a, a right of conquest. But whatever story we choose to believe, um, Cyrus takes over all of the Median territory. So that now suddenly sets him up into a much bigger world, a much bigger playing field. And because he now owns half of Anatolia, he takes his men and he marches right the way to the west of Anatolia, to the cities of Asia Minor, the Greek-speaking cities of Asia Minor. And they particularly have the ambition of conquering the city of Sardis, the wealthiest city in the Greek-speaking world. This was the, the place which was ruled by Croesus. We often talk about the, you know, the, the wealth of Croesus. Um, in fact, it was the place where coins were minted in the first time. Well, um, quickly, very, very quickly, within uh, three or four years, Sardis and the whole of Anatolia fell to Cyrus and his troops. And then what's really remarkable is rather than just make his way home to Persia, as they, he was leading his troops back east, he decided to go to the south and he marched into Babylonia. And at a city called Opis, which is about just 50 miles north of the great city of Babylon, he completely ransacked the city. He raised it to, to dust. He slaughtered everybody. And then he moved his troops right the way down to the gates of Babylon. And the Babylonians opened their gates to him and welcomed him in. There was no resistance. And that's obviously because, you know, he'd already showed what his soldiers could do um, if he was crossed. And so he establishes himself as the king of Babylon. And with Babylon, therefore, comes all of the former Neo-Babylonian territories as well, which include modern-day Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Palestine, uh, even the north of Arabia too. So um, he then returns finally to um, central Iran, where he builds the first ever stone palace. He builds a tomb for himself at Pasargadai, which is his uh, home territory. Um, and then towards the end of his life, he starts campaigns in the east as well, uh, probably goes over to what we would call today Turkmenistan and into Afghanistan as well, and then dies. But it's incredible that within 20 years, really, he, he took Iran from being this tiny nugget of a tribal society into being um, set up to establish the first world superpower. Mm. Uh, it was his son, Cambyses, obviously trained by his father extremely well, who then in 525 BCE conquered Egypt as well. Uh, and, you know, the conquest of Egypt cannot be underestimated uh, at all because Egypt was the wealthiest place in the ancient world. It was the bread basket of antiquity. It was enough bread and, and wheat coming out of there um, to feed the whole empire. So within two generations, the empire had burgeoned to this size. So, and without Cyrus's vision, it, it's incredible really. Um, it just simply wouldn't have happened. Sometimes these kind of characters come into history, don't they, you know? They just have the kind of, the guts to, to do something like that, to dream big, I suppose. Well, and it's, it's fascinating to me about which stories reach us and why and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Cyrus the Great is someone that may be on equal footing to someone like Alexander the Great. 
Yeah, and, and everyone has heard of Alexander, you know? Precisely. Well, the Greeks, you know, were really fixated on Cyrus. I don't think they knew a lot about the reality of it, but they liked the kind of mythology of Cyrus. So in the fourth century, the beginning of the fourth century, Xenophon writes this wonderful work called the, the Cyropodeia, um, which is a kind of paean of praise um, for Cyrus the Great. And the Greeks held Cyrus the Great to be the archetype of a good king. Um, so Xerxes is the, is the bad king, you know, but, but they say, look, but in the beginning, Persia was a noble institution. You know, the, mm. the kings of Persia, like Cyrus, were, were amazing individuals, and they, they fell, you know, in morals and in discipline um, after him. But he does become the kind of linchpin, really, for what the Greeks think about good leadership, military and civil. And I think you're right in that Alexander, I think, really emulated um, Cyrus. I think he tried to follow in Cyrus's footsteps, even entering Babylon in the manner of Cyrus, you know, welcomed and hailed um, by the people. Um, and I think there's a lot more work to be done, actually. I'm, I'm encouraging um, some of my students at the moment to think about writing master's uh, dissertations or even a PhD on the use in the Alexander sources of the Cyrus story. I think there's quite a lot to be done with that. You know, I think that the Alexander historians writing good 300 years after Alexander's death and being very aware of the Greek conception of Cyrus, I think they were modeling Alexander quite a lot on, on the Cyrus of their imagination as well. You know, we, we always go to Alexander and we think Alexander and Achilles, you know, Achilles is supposed to be the, the hero for Alexander, but I'm not so sure. I, I really think that Cyrus set up the model for him. Maybe it may be a better fit. Well, yeah. I'll remind listeners that we're talking to Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones about his brand new book, Persians, the Age of the Great Kings. I have just a couple more questions for you, Professor, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, jumping uh, a little bit forward to the time of Xerxes and the yeah. invasion of Greece, oftentimes the Persian invasion of Greece is framed as this Eastern Western conflict where the future of democracy and wet, wet so-called Western civilization in air quotes was kind of hanging in the balance and the Spartans and Athenians and others were able to uh, defend that in that, in that, that, in that you could even draw a through line from that yeah. to the development of democracy and, uh, in Europe or America, et cetera. So what is your thought to that general framing of what was happening? Yeah, it, 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 that kind of thing, that kind of idea goes very deep uh, in European or Western historiography. So back in, uh, as far back as like 1867, John Stuart Mill um, wrote that the, as far, he said, as far as British history is concerned, as far as British history is concerned, the Battle of Marathon was more important than the Battle of Hastings, mm. he writes, okay? So therefore, you know, like our whole society, our whole culture, our whole idea of what we are as democratic Victorians is dependent on Marathon, on the success against Darius uh, the Great at, at Marathon. Um, and I can take that right the way down. I'm going to quote you, for instance, uh, the work of a young historian, um, a, a good historian, Andrew Bayliss at Birmingham University here in the UK. This is what he's written in 2020, okay? 2020. Thermopylae's greatest legacy was the so-called golden age, 
Had the Persians succeeded in permanently destroying Athens, they would have snuffed out the fledgling Athenian democracy and wouldn't, we would not today marvel at the magnificence of the Parthenon on the Acropolis or be able to read the great works of literature like that of Thucydides, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Plato. None of this would have been possible without the inspiration that the Spartan king Leonidas and his men proved in their stand for freedom. It, it's quite remarkable, I find, that that kind of rhetoric is still going on today. Um, if we look at the way in which the Persians governed their empire, then as I say, first of all, there was a laissez-faire attitude, okay? Right. Now, the Persians had encountered various forms of democracy already in their empire. So many of the Greek city-states that they had already conquered way, way back under Cyrus um, by, the, by the time that um, Herodotus was writing um, were functioning as democracies. The the Persians absolutely let them be. You know, they had no interest in, in changing things. And in fact, democracy kind of worked well for the Persians, you know, to have actually a democratic council to decide things, to work with a satrap would have worked well. Um, and in fact, if the campaign had been successful and Athens had been taken, I think it's highly likely that it would have been set up as a satrapal capital. I think it would have been the capital of, of the Greek-speaking world under the Persians, and I can't see why any of its institutions would have been crushed. Um, but I think what would have happened there is that they would have used Ath Athens as the base to march into the Peloponnese and to crush the Spartans. I think Spartan hegemony would have ended entirely had the Persians actually taken um, Athens. The other thing to remember is, of course, and this is really important, that the, cramp, the campaign against Greece by Xerxes was also participated in by other Greeks who were right. fighting on the Persian side. And that's an extremely important element that is so often overlooked in that, that kind of rhetoric that we've just been alluding to. So very important um, city-states like um, Thebes, you know, where they were extremely loyal to the Persians. They saw that the, a better future awaited for them under Persian leadership than under any Spartan or Athenian control. Um, and other city-states, as the, as, the, as the Persians marched from Thrace down into Attica, um, they were joined by numerous city-states, also those from the Peloponnese, places like Argos, for instance, joined them too, you know. So it was not a war against Greek freedom and Persian oppression, because many Greek city-states saw the value of siding with the Persians. They, they saw a future with, with Persia. So it is not clear cut, and it's certainly not a black and white kind of situation um, that is, is portrayed here. When it comes to thinking about, okay, what actually happened? Well, we do get, of course, the, the, the Thermopylae, which becomes the, um, the cornerstone of Hellenic myth-making for the next 2,000 years, essentially. If you look at this from, a, from the Persian version, as far as Xerxes that was concerned, that was mission accomplished, okay? So one of the things he does there, of course, is he kills the Spartan king. Leonidas is killed. Now, as far as Xerxes was concerned, Leonidas and anybody who rebelled against Persia would be um, working under the auspices of what the Persians called drauga, that is to say, the lie. So if you look at Persian royal inscriptions, 
they are they, the, the Persian kings show their loyalty to, to the god Ahura Mazda, the wise lord. He's the creator of, of the world. He brings order to the world. And the great kings of Persia, like, like Xerxes, are the regents of Ahura Mazda. They are placed on the throne to do the work of Ahura Mazda. Now, Ahura Mazda champions what, what is called Arta. Arta is the old Persian word for truth but it also means order, stability. It means that if you're loyal to the king, therefore you're loyal to the god, and therefore you are in an orderly state of being. The converse of that, the, the, the flip side of that, of course, is the lie, drauga, chaos, rebellion, moving away from the god. These Greek city-states who, who refused to kowtow to the Persian supremacy were therefore... Um, agents of drauga, agents of, of disorder, of, of the lie, mm. uh, of the untruths. So really, when Xerxes kills Leonidas, that really is mission accomplished for him because he has put down a liar king, one of those who caused that. And of course, um, then he marches into to Athens. And again, really, it, it is mission accomplished there too. He sacks the city. He, he you know, he, he burns the city to the ground. Um, we see plenty of evidence from that in the archaeological rubble that we discovered on the Acropolis, um, what is often called um, the, the, the Persian ruins or, or, the, or the Persian pits, where priests or whoever on, on top of the Acropolis are buried statues, buried um, you know, uh, official religious cult um, paraphernalia so that the Persians wouldn't get it. We know that devastation was born, brought to Athens. Now, if only... You know, and here's the great thing as about, you know, um, about Nemesis, I suppose. If only Xerxes hadn't been um, persuaded to then move all of his um, forces onto the sea um, at Salamis, you know, I think that they could have easily um, taken Attica, um, you know, completely um, stopped any further advances and marched in, into the Peloponnese. And the world, it would have been a very different story then. Um, but I do not think that they would have in any way interfered with the democratic and then the cultural, therefore, um, world of the Athenians. It just wasn't the Persian way. It wouldn't have been extinguished in the way that some people seem to, you know, I, I've run into these quotes as well. And I'm glad you read a quote because I've run into similar kinds of quotes from really, yeah. you know, well-respected historians, but, historians, absolutely. Right. But I always yeah. think to him, I, I never quite, the quotes sound great, but I never quite have been able to find the evidence for that idea that, you know, Greek culture would have been extinguished absolutely. or for the idea that Thermopylae was so pivotal to it yeah. all. I mean, yeah. I, I just, I, absolutely. It's, it's simply I, not there, but you know, publishers keep churning out these books. Um, <laughs> if I noticed last week, in fact, you know, on, on the same shelf as Persians is being sold. Um, I saw a new book. I can't remember who it's by, sorry, but it was called something like um, um, Marathons, Thermopylae and Salamis, the battles that saved the West. Right. These are still being churned out. When I in, find it incredible. Well, and I and you know when you're talking about some of the positive aspects of of the Persian Empire and the way that it's been mischaracterized, and there's a lot about Sparta that's almost you know they basically had a militaristic kind of fascist sort of yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely right super right yeah. wing not to right, project absolutely. modern stuff onto it, yeah. but it just was hyper-conservative culture. I, I don't know that 
everyone knows a lot of this stuff. Um, but it, again, it goes to the, the importance of who's telling these stories, how they're being told. Precisely, and, precisely. And all of that. I, I no, want to ask the, you. The Spartans were no lover of freedom. You know, they, they right. really weren't. They really weren't. It's kind of interesting, though, in, in later generations, you know, the Persians make quite tight alliances with the Spartans mm. um, because the Persians recognize the, the cold brutality of the Spartan regime and that they can actually play on it as well. So, you know, the, the Spartans get played by the Persians quite a lot in the in the fourth century. Well, and, and, and so much of this is, you know, history, it's, it's how useful is it to people? You know, people are using history for their own purposes. I mean, they're yeah. not necessarily looking at, they're using it for political purposes, entertainment purposes, things like that are, are more important than maybe an objective uh, look at what, what happened. Um, uh, but nonetheless, I mean, Persia was invading, you know. Uh, yeah, it was a superpower. It, it's an right. empire builder, okay? And I'm, we're not going to get away from that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not an apologist about <laughs> it. You know, I, I'm a revisionist. I want to revise the history and put Persia right. in its place. But I certainly cannot apologize for it being, uh, a huge empire that builds its its uh, on its success through military aggression. You know, square-jawed soldiers went around with swords and spears and axes doing horrific things. Um, the Persians um, deported populations from one city to another. And I'm sure, actually, if Athens had been taken, that probably would have been um, the consequence for some people in Athens too. They were probably deported to Babylon or something like that. That was the standard practice um, for monarchs in the ancient Near East for, for many centuries, you know. Um, but certainly as this kind of um, culture-crushing juggernaut, the Persians simply were not that. Interesting. Well, and I, I want to ask you uh, about the end of the empire um, and Alexander... You know, the, the thing that strikes me that's so uh, strange about it is that with, 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 you know, this was an empire that, as you said, lasted for centuries, um, was, was the world's first superpower. Uh, you know, oftentimes with Rome or with other people talk about the American empire or the British empire, mm -hmm. you see these, you know, there are, there are important events, but there's also a certain gradual decline to it all. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. the thing that strikes me with the Persian Empire was just the the how quickly Alexander the Great was able to kind of just topple the topple it and take over. So, what is your take on that? And and can you maybe shed a little bit of light on how this empire went from seemingly so powerful one generation to then yeah. gone the next? Sure, I hope so. I mean, it's it's something I've given a lot of thought to as well. One thing I, I reject entirely is the idea of the kind of the following Persia through the usual rise and fall of empire scenarios. As you say, it didn't have a long decline, even though in the historiography from the period of Xerxes onwards, Western scholars have depicted it in that way. You know, it, um, the, the great kings become increasingly more decadent. Um, they rely on eunuchs, the um, listening to the kind of machinations of women of the harem, all of this kind of stuff. It's the classic um, Eastern way, Western way of, of, of deriding the East, okay? Um, and to be fair, though, it, it's also the way in which sort of uh, in the 18th and 19th century, the fall of Rome was thought about too. Decadent empires living increasingly, uh, emperors living increasingly uh, dissolute lives. 
Well, in fact, what we know about the Persian Empire contradicts that entirely because in the last two really great kings of the empire, Artaxerxes III and Darius III, we have two very, very powerful military rulers. Mm. Artaxerxes III in particular had a long reign in which he reconquered Egypt. Egypt had seceded from the empire for 60 years. It was reconquered by Artaxerxes III, which means he was brought back into the center of the empire. Now that must have been a huge boost to the empire, not only to morale, but also to finances. And Darius III, despite the way he's depicted in the classical sources as this coward who runs away, not from one, but from two, possibly even three battles. In fact, we know from the Persian sources that he was a brilliant um, military leader uh, and a very fine ruler, generally. So there was no fall, no dip, no decline here. And that can be emphasized again by the fact that in faraway Bactria, that is in modern day Afghanistan, we discovered an archive uh, of uh, documents relating to the administration of that part of the empire. And the documents straddle the years between Artaxerxes III, Darius III, and the opening years of the reign of Alexander. And what these documents show is that there was no economic collapse. There was no downturn you know, in uh, wealth, in income, um, in expenditure. Everything was operating really, really smoothly. It shows us that, Darius, uh, that Alexander inherited an empire that was functioning as well as it had been doing 200 years earlier. And that's really fascinating. What I think happens is that rather than thinking as it, as it used to be, that Alexander comes in and he kind of puts the empire out of its misery, you know, this long drawn out death, he kind of comes in and he sort of slits its throat, in fact. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's sudden, it's brutal, unexpected. And I think it's down to the new fighting tactics that the Macedonians had adopted. And just, again, that, that strength and speed that Alexander as a general adopted at his best. When he was at, when he was working at his best, he was formidable. And you know, I, I think that's why I think he, he can be compared to Cyrus the Great. There's a lot of crossover um, in the way that those empires were both built so quickly, really, you know, with kind of not much preparation, it seems. Um, you know, had Darius done things differently, things could have changed. Rather than waiting for Alexander to move down into Anatolia, if um, Darius had sent his troops to the coast of Asia Minor, to the Hellespont, and not even allowed Alexander to set foot on Asia, I think we would, you know, the, the empire would have lasted much, much longer. But once Alexander was there, he was able to storm his way through with new, new fighting techniques more than anything else. But you're absolutely right in what you say. It's, it's not the conventional fall of an empire at all. It's quite clear that the empire was strong and stable, and that's the empire that Alexander inherited. What do you think the the legacy of of the Persian Empire is uh, beyond Alexander and beyond the ancient world? Um, you know, well, you know, in um, in Iran, it's an important aspect of Iran's self identity in a way that we in the West can't possibly understand. They they think very highly of this period. Um, and, you know, the Iranian government, the theocracy there is, is, is a very difficult regime for people to live under. And I think within Iran, the stories of the Achaemenid great kings, the stories of the Persian Empire give them a sense of pride. 
um, and a sense of identity. For us, I suppose, in the West, you know, because Iran, ancient Persia, has been written out of our of our histories for so long, it's hard to say that there's a legacy. What I think is what I what I feel about it is, is that oh, what a what a missed opportunity we've had, not discovering what Persia was about much earlier in our own history. You know, um, had for instance, uh, instead of teaching the, those usual Greek and Roman. Um, versions of empire in the public schools of England, for instance. You know, we've got a we've got a prime minister at the moment who uses his Greek and Latin like a sort of social distancing tool. You know, it's a it's a class. It's part of a class warfare that's gone on in Britain for centuries and centuries. You know, we've educated people in the glories of Greece and the splendor of Rome. If only we'd educated them in the Persian Empire, we could have. Or might not have stopped the spread of, of something like the British Empire, or for that matter, the American Empire, if you want to think in those terms too. But I think we could have given people um, <clears throat> under the control <clears throat> of Britain and America more dignity uh, and more space to be themselves. There are different ways in which empire can be operated, and the, the Persians show us a stark contrast to what we've accepted as the norm. I love the way how you described it as sort of a what a missed opportunity it's been not knowing more about the Persians. Yeah. When 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 I got your book, I looked at it and I have it sitting right next to me. It's a it's a beautiful book. And, you know, I, I just started and I was like almost a light bulb went off in my head. Like, of yeah. course, I read all this stuff about the Greeks and Romans and stuff like that. And this was the first book where I was actually, you know, learning about the Persians. And I'm, I was just sort of stunned that it hadn't occurred to me to do a deeper dive. I just had all these surface level understandings of a few of these different figures that related to Alexander or to whoever. Um, So uh, I've been reading. I I really empathize with with you, you know, and I'm pleased to say that, you know, I, I teach Persian history to my students at Cardiff University um, in fact, we, we teach Persian history right the way through the Roman period. So we do the Parthians, the Sasanians as well. So they, yeah, my students get a, a far more holistic approach to what the ancient world really should be. Um, and in this day and age, you know, we, we cannot keep on writing um, essentially white Western male histories. You know, they, there's, there's no room for that any longer. They, it's been done for centuries and it's got us nowhere. Um, we are a global community now, and we have to start thinking about global histories, including global antiquities as well. Um, you know, if I can in the future, I want to write um, things about North Africa in antiquity. I want to write about the Maya, you know, and bring them into a bigger world culture as well. It's it's really important that we start doing that because otherwise we're just going to be at this constant impasse you know, and, and what's the point? If history is there to teach us anything, it's to teach us that the world is a big place and we've got a lot to learn yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Professor, it's been great talking to you. Uh, congratulations on on the book coming out. Uh, it's getting great reviews. I'm really enjoying it. Like I said, I'm, I'm reading it uh, most nights and I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving it. So uh, thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you want to add or, or point uh, listeners to other than uh, other than toward the book. Um, well, just to say thank you very much for for having me here. Uh, yeah, please do buy the book and uh, do leave comments. You know, on um, you know various sites, Amazon or uh, where, wherever you do. It's great to have feedback. 
Um, and if you want more Persian things, um, one of the things you can do, uh, even uh, from abroad, is to join the British Institute of Persian Studies, which is a, a really great resource, which has lots of things online, lots of events, um, including things which, uh, you know, webinars and, and this kind of stuff. Um, and I'm sure that if you if you look out, you will find Persian societies all around you as well. Uh, don't be afraid to, to look into them, join them, speak to Iranians as well, because these people uh, tend to be very cultured, very knowledgeable about their history and very proud of it. So let's get ancient Persia, you know, up front and center in our discourse of history. Awesome. Sounds good to me, Professor. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk again one day. Absolutely. I'd really like that. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.